Well, Lynn, it's always a great joy to have you come and share in the Word with us, brother. If you would, uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, Lynn's been coming the fourth Sunday of every month, and uh, I love this brother. Anybody love this guy? Amen. Love you dearly. I'll get it for you. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? It's good to see everybody. The question is, are you wore out already on this Memorial Day weekend? Or are you halfway there? Yeah. I talked to uh, Brad, and we were talking about having high schoolers that are graduating. And if you think that if I fall asleep, in other words, in the middle of my message, you know that we've had a few projects that we're working on to get ready for the open house. People always say, well, why do you do this right before graduation? Uh, it's the only way my wife can get me motivated to do anything around the house. And <laughs> no, I work better with a deadline. So uh, by the time Karis graduates, we're going to do kind of a home makeover edition. We're going to tear the old house down, rebuild a new one. Memorial Day weekend always reminds me of the story of the uh, mother that was trying to get her uh, child into the second service of a church that had multiple services. And in this church lobby, in the foyer, they had kind of a, a plaque that hung outside in the lobby. And it was a memorial for those that had died in service. And that's what it said. It said, you know, for those that have died in service. And there was a list of guys from the congregation that had served in the military and died. And the mother, you know, was trying to get her child into the service, and he's just starting to drag his feet. And uh, she goes, what is wrong with you? She says, I'm not going in here. Or he said, I'm not going in here until I talk to the pastor and find out which service they died in. <laughs> so there have been a few services that I've attended that I thought that I was going to die in. It's just uh, it's really bad, really bad stuff. <laughs> but hopefully you won't feel that way this morning. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn over to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. And I want us to go back to the text that last month when we were here, uh, we shared. And as we share through the summer on the fourth Sunday, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be targeting Acts chapter 2. But I just felt it was important just to review just for a few moments. And I told uh, Carmen and the kids when we were talking about what I was going to do today, uh, I said, well, I'm just going to take a few minutes and review and Jesse said, Dad, <laughs> stop, you know, stop, Dad. <laughs> but I always feel I need to reconnect where we left off. And we started out in Ephesians 5. And I want us just to read this verse, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. We know that Paul is using uh, this teaching at, on marriage to reflect upon greater spiritualities, and we talked about that last time we shared. And he talked about how husbands are to be a prophetic type. They're really, husbands and wives are living out prophecy right now. Every day we are in our relationship with each other. We are to be prophesying of a greater truth concerning the bridegroom king's relationship with his bride. And so he talks about how that the husband is to nurture and to cherish his wife in the exact same way that Christ is nurturing the heart and the spirit of his church. And he says that he does it in a very specific way. He says that 
he washes her with the washing of the word. But when we shared last month, what we said was there were three things that he was attempting to accomplish in releasing his word to her. And he said, number one, that she would be without spot. Then he said that she would be without wrinkle and that she would be without blemish. And the heart of that teaching that I gave last time is that when you unpack those words, I shared with you that only one of them refers to external cleanliness. The other two relate to her appearance of age. And so when it says that she's without spot, it's talking about having something that externally has defiled her, smudged her, she has some type of dirt upon her, and the word is there to wash her, to cleanse her from things that have defiled her by living in a fallen world. But then it says that she would be without wrinkle or blemish, and I share with you that the Greek words there do not imply something external, but something internal that it's about her uh, appearance in relationship to her age. And the spiritual point that I made is that Jesus is coming back for a church like the church that he left, a church that is youthful, a church that is vibrant, a church that is able to express the life that is within her. And I made the statement, and it, you know, it was an original statement, But I said that he's coming for a church that is forever young. And that over 2,000 years of church history, the church has lost her youthfulness. She's lost her vigor, her ability to express the life of God that is within her as she has fallen into complexity. And I said we've spent many, much of church history spending 2,000 years complicating our life in God. And so what we do is we layer our life with God with religion, and what it does is it it causes the church to be spiritually arthritic. When we disconnect from the life of God, from the life within us, and we get on into any other life force to try to sustain the church, the church begins to age, and she begins to age rapidly. And so 2,000 years later in church history, you see much of the church incapable of multiplying, reproducing. She has lost her fertility. She has lost, again, her ability to be able to be active and engaged in partnership with God. And so when he says that he washes her with the water of the Word, that yes, it refers to her sanctification, her purity. He comes to separate us not just from the world, but unto himself. But the washing of the water of the word is also the dynamic of refreshing, renewal. And I don't know about you, but I do take showers every day. One of them is to get washed and to be cleansed. But as I've been in this reconstruction, remodel mode this last week and going day in and day out, Yes, I wanted to get some of the filth off of me physically, but I just love the renewal and the refreshing you get when you get into a warm shower and you just allow the water to rejuvenate you. That is what the preceding Word of God is like when when the church is, is connected to the heart of God and we're hearing His words and His declarations over us. It is cleansing but it's also rejuvenating and renewing. And so we talked about how that God is coming back. Jesus is coming back for the church that he left. And she is a church that's going to be forever young, vibrant, and active. Now what I said was, I said, we've got to go back then to the church that he left, and we've got to go back to the book of Acts, and we've got to try to dig deep and discover essential elements that facilitated the church staying in that place of refreshing and renewal. And so let's go over to Acts chapter 2, and I want to go back to those four essential elements that we just described and we talked about out of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is a a well-worked passage. If you talk about, you know, being a New Testament church, what the New Testament church was like, 
in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and I believe through 48, there's just about 18 characteristics in rapid succession that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, it says are the descriptors of what the church was like. But upon deeper examination, as you begin to look at this passage, you see that 12 of them, or 13 of them, however you outline it and diagram it, they are the byproducts of four essential things. And let me just look at some of the, the byproducts here and, and review them for, for you. And this, read this whole text. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so those were the four essential elements that they committed themselves to, kept it simple, kept it intentional, kept it focused. If you said, if you distilled it down, what was the New Testament church doing on a regular, continual basis? It was those four things. And it was in the practices of those four spiritual disciplines that the rest of what is listed in this passage was the result of. And so sometimes I think, okay, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and power, uh, prayer, you mean that that was the secret of the New Testament church's power? Let me just say these. These practices are not the end of, them, end, end of themselves. I'll get that out of there. If you, somebody will help me. In in and of themselves. But they were the vehicles. They were the channels by which God could connect with his people and wash them with the water of his word. It's interesting that each one of these four essential elements that currently now in the church, all of them have been marginalized and instead of being the center of the practices of the church, they are now the periphery. We give them lip service, or they're kind of like a pale pastel. They're not vividly vibrant colors in the church. I remember a young man uh, who is probably not so young anymore, but I listened to Paul Vieira at a conference in Anderson, and he was talking about the way the church celebrates the Lord's Supper. And he was talking about how we pass out these little plastic cups, and we have a broken cracker, and he said, really, if we brought and fast-forwarded people from the, the book of Acts to our time, they would, as we give them this little piece of cracker and a cup, they would say, this is a rip-off. <laughs> but it shows you how far we have fallen from focusing in on the breaking of bread and the significance of it. And you go, Lynn, don't we eat enough? I'm not talking about simply having a meal. I'm talking about inviting the person and the presence of Christ in your midst and in the midst of koinonia, focusing in on the centrality of the work of Christ, actually wanting to connect with Christ in the midst of his body and relate to the body in a way that is pleasing to God. The Bible says that we recognize the way God has put those in the church in the way that it is ple uh, pleasing to him. The Bible also describes that we've got to acknowledge the way God has fit the body together. And so when I fellowship, it's a time of discovery. It's a time of searching. It's a time of revelation of Christ, not only to us, but in the midst of us. And so, not only do we not do the love feast and the breaking of bread, and we are very, very, you know, cavalier when it comes to the intentionality of fellowship and the importance of it. But basically, we just have kind of peripheral things. How you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. You okay? And we're on to the next activity. 
And listen, God is wanting us to understand that Christianity is not just an event going to heaven. It is a process of discovery. It's a process of experiencing and growing and developing, not only with our relationship with Him, but those that we're going to spend eternity with, with each other. And so I've got to challenge myself. Do I really know those that I'm walking with? Do I really love and know those that I am relating to? And the world claims that we're hypocrites. And and really, to be honest with you, there is a basis to that accusation. Because they say we we talk about deep relationships and deep life. and, And we talk about, you know... Loving each other, and by this the world will know that we love. Uh, we know that the Father is sinning because of our love for each other, and they know that we're as shallow as they are. Except we speak Christianese. You know, we got all the language. Hallelujah! What's it to you, brother? You know that type of stuff. But God is going to challenge the church to say, "I want you to go back to the basics. I want you to refocus." I want you to even retool your practices, and I want you to recover these lost things. And I want you to reclaim the intimacy that you can experience by the recapturing and the recovering of them. And so he talks about the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the bringing of the bread, and and prayer and worship. Now, I I said that we were going to go back to the overflow. What is the byproduct? And, and forgive me, but I'm a, I'm a task-oriented person by my personality type. And so I'm a results guy. I want the results. Okay? Don't just have me come over and do a love feast with you. We've got to be going somewhere. You know, the feasting's got to lead to a greater reality of love. Hello? Greater revelation of love that transforms both you and I together. And so look at the byproduct of what happened in the church when they pressed in with a great focus and devotion on these things. It says everyone. Everybody say everyone. I want that. I, I don't want just 10% of the church to have an awe and, and experience of the manifest presence of God in their life. I want it from the oldest to the youngest. I would love to engage with a a group of people, a community of people that God so captures our heart that everyone, every family, senior saints down to the newest members, there is something about a tangible manifest presence of God that marks us. And it says everyone was in awe. You mean we won't have to pump anybody up for the worship service with kind of the tune-up song? Hello. <laughs> no, you won't. I guarantee you when the body of Christ gets into that mode, there will be such anticipation. And number one, you better get here early because there won't be a, a seat in the house. Because when there is this awe and the manifest presence of God, there is an environment for miracles. It says there was a and awe, and it says, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And I'm not going to read this whole text, but I'm just going to paraphrase these to you. There was the awe, the manifest presence, healings, miracles. There was a unity that described an interdependence that they came to, which led to extravagant giving and unprecedented sharing. Again, church was not a time and a location. Not against services. Services are important and they're practical. But church was looked at as a people of God that were present in the context of their community. So church becomes not a place or a time, but a people that are called by His name, marked by His presence, living out as a missional community. And it says God was glorified and they had unprecedented favor. And this is a big one for me and I shared it last time. There was the salvation of thousands of people. 
They didn't have to come up with, you know, the evangelism plan or the evangelism strategy. It was a byproduct of life. Do we get that? That fertility leads to multiplication. And when the womb of the church gets nurtured by the washing of the water of the apostle of the church, Jesus Christ, he prepares a place for spiritual conception. And the result is that the church is going to grow and the church is going to multiply. Okay, now the thing that I wanted to cover this morning is I wanted to cover the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And next month when I come, we're going to talk about the fellowship and the breaking of bread. And then we're going to finish up with worship and prayer. Now I'm going to say this to you before we press into this first one of kind of trying to define it and unpack it. I hope that I offend you this morning. And as you know, I've said before, I'll say it again, that God, many times through His Word, offends our mind to reach our heart. Because God is concerned about the condition of your heart. He's concerned about your relationship with Him. He wants to remove everything that would hinder love. And so He wants us, His Spirit is described as the Spirit of Truth, And so if we want to be a people of His presence, want to be a people of His Spirit, we've got to be able to be willing to embrace truth even when it hurts. And we have a culture that does not like to be confronted. Matter of fact, you know, as a parent, I, I, I talk to my kids often and sometimes louder than other at other times, you know. But I just talked to them that when you confront someone about something that you observe and see and you try to make an adjustment, it doesn't necessarily need a response or a justification or an excuse. Hello. Or a reason why that obedience was not complied to. The best answer is to clothe ourselves with humility And to be willing to have a broken and a contrite spirit when truth comes to us and we see that truth, the light of that truth has exposed areas where we have fallen short of the glory of God. Instead of making excuses, we just need to own it. Allow truth to just own us. Allow truth to ride us, take us to the truth rodeo and break that bronco. Glory to God. It's true. And Jesus is that man that has broken many broncos. And I is one of those broncos. And unless I allow him to come and confront me daily, I find that I will fall into that thing called the pride of life, which is this vestigial remnant of my sin nature that is still in my flesh. And my flesh wants to fight back and say, excuse me, Jesus, could you get off the throne? Because I just want to borrow it for a day. You know, Jesse Duplantis calls it the fits of carnality. You know, we just uh, hey, could you move over a second? I'm coming back in because you're not ruling your kingdom in my heart very well. I'm going to come back on the throne just for a little bit. No, some of you have been asking the million-dollar question, who is the Antichrist? Inquiring minds want to know. Look in the mirror. That man of sin, that beast nature is ready to rise out of the sea at any moment. And I know that that may not comply with some of the teachings that you'll get on TBN. But I tell you what, why worry about one that may come someday, somewhere, somehow, when you need to deal with the man of lawlessness right there that's the Antichrist in your life? And the Antichrist, the word anti there, does not just simply mean that which is opposed to Christ's rule, but it means a substitute for Christ. It is that one that in the idolatry of my pride, I can say, excuse me, I'm going to take it from here. So every day I need to have Jesus come 
And I believe in his literal physical coming, but I also believe that we've got to believe that he can also come in the brightness of his revealing to us and slay that beast through the power of his word. See, some of us want to see him ride on the white charger with this sword out of his mouth at the end days. I say, why wait? I say, ride on Jesus right now because I want your word to slay some things in my life that need to be slain, that oppose your rule and your reign in my life. Okay, so you guys ready to be offended? The apostolic teaching, it says they were devoted. And the word devoted means both that they were connected both with the quantity of devotion and the quality of devotion. And by that I mean that when they started pressing their mind and pressing their heart into the apostolic teaching and the apostolic gospel, it was something they didn't just look at and lay down. Once they got a hold of it, they were going to run with it for the rest of their lives. They were not just curious about new revelation that was a trend or a fad, but there was a longevity. The word devoted means to lay a hold of something without fail. In other words, that they were in it for the long haul. My brothers and sisters, can we once again ask God to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation where we will start looking at the scriptures as if we've never read them before. Could we ask God to make it so fresh, so real, so relevant to us that every day that when we open it up, that inexhaustible, multifaceted revelation of the beauty and the glory of God that every day there is a new depth that I reach. There is a new layer that I go into. There is, there is something that the Holy Spirit gives me another uh, expression of a facet of the glory and the beauty of the God that we serve that we have not seen before. Otherwise, we commit the sin of familiarity. And when we open up, again, because we've lost our all, we pick it up and we go, I read that before, heard that before. And uh, is there something else out there that can entertain me to give me some type of entertainment value? The Bible says that to this man will God look, the one who is broken of a contrite heart. In other words, he's teachable and he's humble, but that he trembles at his word. That we long to hear it. We want to hear it. We ache to hear it. We're desperate to hear it. We're hungering to hear it. So we're praying every day. I want a gift of hunger. I want a gift of thirst, God. Would you give me something more from you? I long for more, 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 more. Give me my appetite back. And so they were devoted for the long haul of saying, this is my focus. This is what I'm going to give my life to. This is what I'm going to press my mind and my heart into. I am going to become a person of the gospel. Now, when I was trying to illustrate, you know, about the gospel, you know, whenever there is a species, a rare species, where they, you know, quantify that the numbers are getting pretty slim, they'll put them on the endangered species list. Going to make a bold declaration. In the context of the Western church, in Canada and the United States, the gospel of Jesus Christ the apostolic gospel of the New Testament should be added to an endangered species list. I say with kind of a broken heart today that in much of the churches in sleepy heartland Indiana, which you think, you know, still is a part of the Bible belt, some part of the buckle, some part of the leather of the belt should be represented here. There is very little of the gospel that is preached. And so we've got to make a commitment as a community of believers to say we've got to go back 
rediscover. We've got to go back and remind the truths that have been lost. And it's amazing how Jesus said, whatever has been measured out to you, if you are not faithful to maintain the stewardship of it, even that which you have can be taken away. The church in America in the West is in a state of regression. And I've, I, I've been amazed at how quickly in 20 years the regression has happened. And so there is biblical illiteracy. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about the Bible stories. I'm talking about a spiritual literacy, a spiritual understanding of how spiritual things work. They're talking about some of the craftsmen of yonder year when we were in a, in a period of time where there were men that were meticulous craftsmen. And, you know, you started out as an apprentice and a journeyman and you worked where and you wanted to become a master craftsman. They said that right now there are preservationist organizations all over to preserve the crafts. Because we've become so advanced in our mass production in technology, there are lost arts that are being lost to us every day. And so that there is this urge to, to develop societies that can conserve and preserve things that are going to be lost to us forever. Well, one of those things, we need to become a gospel preservationist society. To say that in this house, the gospel will be protected. The gospel will be preserved. Lest it is lost, not only to us, but to our children and our children's children. Because the strategy of the enemy has been substitution or dilution. And substitution means that you're getting a product that looks like the product... And it's marketed as the product. And it can may even smell like the product. But it is not the product. And then you get a new generation. All they've known is the substitute. And I've watched the expression. And of course, those of us that are from Wisconsin or the great white north up there. I mean, the dairy state, you do butter. You don't do margarine up there. Matter of fact, they do have a freezer section where margarine, margarine is in the freezers, but there's label warning labels all over the place. You know, it's like forbidden, no trespassing, you know. You buy butter up there. You enjoy butter. I said you enjoy butter. I knew I would get some type of response here, glory to God. I tell you, butter is a creative miracle of God. Let me give you a revelation. <laughs> Whew. Get that biscuit right out of the oven. You put some butter on that. And you put mama's strawberry preserves mixed in with that buttery melting thing. And I guess what? You are translated to the third heavens right there. Throne room experience. You see Jesus face to face. <laughs> Woo-wee! That is good. And so this has been my experience with butter. Powerful thing. And then you get, guess what? Then you have some child that's been raised on margin, and you're wanting to bring them into truth. And you give them some butter on that biscuit, and they go, What's wrong with this? What did you put on that? You know why? Because they're used to eating artificial plastic that is colored yellow. I think you're getting my point. Substitution is what has happened in the church for a long time. And we marketed it as the gospel, but it's not the gospel. Or some of us, we've fallen into a trap where there is such a mixture that it becomes in its density and in the concentration of its form, it becomes so light that it no longer has the power for impact. And because I am a results guy, this is what is concerning me. I want to see the results. I want to see people confronted with the 
the truth density of the gospel. Where when they, when they leave a meeting after hearing the gospel, they don't just walk out and say, where are we going to eat? They go, I, I'm going home. I don't feel well. I was planning on going out to eat with you, but I can't. i got to go home. Now, they don't tell anybody they're going to go home and pray. They're not telling anybody they're going to go home and lay on their face. They don't tell that God has given them a gift of tears that is working a work of godly sorrow in their heart, and there is a gift of repentance that is being given to them, and they run home because they don't feel well, but it's really an excuse. It's because they've got a spiritual heartache right now. That's what I want to see again. I want to see again where the gospel is being preached, and then I've watched it. I've watched it when I was young. I would, And sometimes they're technique and their method and their presentation was a little hard or harsh, all those things. But I would rather have bad technique and get the results that those old line preachers used to get than to have somebody wear jeans and a nice purple shirt and know how to work a crowd but move nobody's heart towards God. One of the most vivid things that I remember as a child is my dad took me to a revival service. And we sat behind a row of young adults. And this man that was doing the work that night was a preacher of the gospel. (laughs) And man, he started to unpacking Christ and him crucified. And as a child, I'm there watching and I'm, I'm riveted by the message. But I'm also now starting to watch this row of kids on the, on, right in front of me. And I'm watching them beginning to start getting out Kleenexes out of purses. And I begin to watch a couple of them starting to grip the front of the seats in front of them. I'm beginning to watch them go through this agony as the conviction of the Holy Spirit begin to come upon their life. Right in the middle of the message, and it scared me half to death. And for those that are confession police, only half to death, not totally to death. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. But this one just cried out, and she said, I can't take it anymore. And she went running up to the altar. And as soon as she was willing to comply to the drawing of the Holy Spirit, I watched this whole row empty, and they ran to the altars. The preacher said, we're done tonight. We're going to let the Holy Spirit move. The Word had worked. And the Word had, if Jesus is lifted up, He will draw all men to Himself. The purpose of the gospel is not to draw us into greater intimacy with ourselves. And this is going to be offensive. It's going to be offensive. Beware of image religion. Beware of religion that talks about, this is about self-improvement and making you the new you and everything else. It's not about being drawn to you or the better you. It is to being drawn to the glorious Son of God and being changed not into some image that makes you look good or flashy or, uh, you know, glorious. It is about you being conformed into the image of His beauty and glory. Now, in the book of Acts, there I said this before, there are 18 messages. And what I was studying for this message... I just kind of went through the book of Acts again. There are 18 messages that are recorded. It's not just about the actions of the apostle, but about the preaching of the apostles. And in those 18 messages is the content of the apostolic teaching. And I'm not going to take time because it's already too late. Next time, we'll pick it up. There are five elements that you can look. Five elements, and we may review them quickly, but we'll save it for another time. But there are essential elements that every one of them, and yes, they spoke 
in their context. So if they were speaking to Jews, there was a Jewish context because they were speaking to a Jewish audience. And if they were speaking to Gentiles, there was a Gentile context. But the content did not change. The context changed, but the content didn't change. The message was the same. And so a lot of these messages, they are just exhaustive messages. I mean, you read Stephen's message and you go, wow, this guy could preach. He knew the Old Testament. And he started out with creation and he walked them all the way through history because he was speaking to a Jewish context and how God had been faithful to him and how he had walked with them and how he made him his own unique people. And he built them up saying, listen, God has marked our life. And he has spoken to us. And he made a covenant with us. And then he brought to them what you did with Messiah. When God gave you Messiah, then in your heart and heart, what did you do to the consummate revelation? What did you do with the messenger of the covenant? And of course, they were undone. You go, well, Lynn, he didn't get the right reaction. I mean, it said they, they started gritting their teeth and, you know, renting their clothes. They wanted to get out of him. I tell you what, I would rather see people get angry with me than to get the indifferent reaction that we see in so much of the church. Either, either say, yes, God, let's go. I'm going to go deeper and I'm going to press in like I've never pressed before or just get angry with me. Because I know that if I can irritate you just to be angry, then God is already at work challenging you where you're at. But what we do is when we dilute it to such a level where it doesn't even offend the mind, it can never reach the heart. If it's diluted to such a degree that it'll never have that concentrated impact that brings about transformation. And so what we have is we have thousands of pastors that are leaving the ministry every year. You go, well, why? I think there are many reasons, but one of the reasons why is it's just hard to teach unrepentant people the ways of God. So how would you like to do a job where people don't care about the job that you do? They don't value the thing that you're sharing. And they could care less about the message because what we've done is we've inoculated. And I want to say to the pastors that are giving up in frustration and saying, I've had enough. I want to tell them, it's your own fault. You inoculated them. You gave them just a little bit of the virus to inoculate them. The gospel virus that changes the heart and moves the heart. That convicts us deeply about where we've been and what we're doing even now. And moves us to transformation, to cause us to really value the grace and make it amazing. <laughs> I always used to struggle over that hymn verse of amazing grace where it says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. I go, what is that? Grace is about, you know, me not fearing anything. No, Grace, the true, pure understanding of grace brings us into a place where we see our salvation is so precious. The scripture that says, it is now time the judgment begin in the house of God. And if it begins with us, what's going to happen when God begins to really deal with the world? And then he goes on, Peter goes on and he says, for we need to know that we are scarcely saved. And I used, that used to bother me. It means that I, do I need to get insecure about my salvation? No, not in any way. Peter's point was, you need to understand, there wasn't three options that the God had weighed out to save you. There wasn't a 2.0 plan. When Jesus was in the garden agonizing over getting separated from his father and bearing the weight 
of my sin and your sin, saying, please, I've never known sin. I've never known separation. Let this cup pass. Let there be found some other way that can deal with their sin. And all he got was silence from heaven. I tell you what, the scarcity of our salvation was in the rarity that only God could have done it. An angel couldn't have done it. You see that picture of the vision in Revelation where there was the searching of a worthy one. And in heaven and in all the earth and even in the uttermost parts of the depths of the earth. And John, by that time, in the searching as he's seeing it, and they're going throughout everywhere in the universe to try to find a remedy. And he's broken at that moment. And finally, the elder walks up to him and said, John, you don't know the end of the story. You're just seeing the process of the heart of God as he searched for a way to redeem them. Every option was considered. Because who wants to give up your son, your only son? You do want to find another option. And he said, oh, there has been one who has been found. And he said that it was a lion, the picture of a lion, that had become a lamb. And John said, I saw him as a lamb that had been slain. But the voice that accompanied that vision of the Lamb, he said, this is the Lion of the tribe of Judah who has prevailed. Now, every day, instead of it being this thing where grace becomes this cheapened thing that empowers me to live a reckless life, to do what I want to, all of a sudden has become amazing to me where I understand the rarity of what it, took to redeem me and so I have great value so it is grace that teaches my heart to fear and grace those fears relieved we've got to recover the gospel we really do now I want to finish because I'm going to finish before noon I'm actually doing okay today But I think that it's essential that we need to see that when we start talking about the recovery of the gospel, that we will begin to know when we're getting closer to the fullness of its restoration. And quickly turn with me to Mark chapter 11. This is why I say this. I want you to see what God did in partnership with the church. Mark 16. Ah, 16, sorry. 16. 19, not Mark 11. Mark 16, 19. Maybe, maybe the Lord wants me to teach out of Mark 11. So we can go over there and see what that chapter says if you want. Searching for a Kleenex. says, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. There's a couple ways that this verse can be translated. Some people say, and it is true, that the them is not in the original Greek. So certain people read it. The Lord worked with, really, the preaching of the word or the word and confirmed the word. But the translators are trying to say, based upon the, the structure of the sentence, yes, it is the word, but it was the word that they preached. And there are two things that it says that God did. And the Greek word for worked is the work 
or, or the word synergeo, which we get our word synergy from. And I love that thought of God making synergy happening with me when I do weak things. The foolishness of preaching or the foolishness of praying. I tell you, and we'll look at that later when we finally unpack prayer, but there is no greater looking weakness than somebody just praying. Well, it's come to that. We better pray. <laughs> no. In other words, what we say is we've tried everything else. We, we've, we've worked through all of our options. Now we're going to pray. You know why? Because we don't like that feeling of weakness. What difference is this going to make? Preaching is the same way. Many times I've said, what difference did we make today? And only eternity can tell. And sometimes I get little clues by somebody years later coming up to me, and they'll go, do you remember me? And you need to understand, when some of you do that, I go, I've changed, you've changed, you've grown up, and I'm getting more forgetful, sorry. But they'll say, that night you preached a message on XYZ. You remember that message? I'll go, no, absolutely not. And normally I joke with them. I'll say, I'll slip something. They'll say, you'll never understand. It was as if God was speaking to me directly that night. I'm amazed at how the Holy Spirit can take a group of 100, 200 people and he'll tailor make that message for each individual here. He comes to you in the form of his word and he says, this is what I'm speaking to you about. Big boy, big girl. I'm looking right at you. Some people have come up to me right after the sermon. They say, you stared at me the whole time. I said, no, I didn't. I didn't stare at you. I didn't want to. Matter of fact, ever since people say that, I try to pick out Carmen or I'll stare at her. And you notice she's not even in the service. She went out afraid that I was going to stare at her the whole time. Now, she knows when I preach, I'm preaching at her. Trying to, trying to get that woman sanctified, <laughs> straightened up. <laughs> Just kidding. Now, let me finish. <clears throat> no. The Holy Spirit, God has used the Holy Spirit and my wife to do wonderful, amazing things in me. It's been a process. But God has used her. I better not get to meddling. This is, this is not a marriage seminar, by the way. We won't go there. But it's amazing how that my wife can raise me up and then just in a few moments say, yeah, you, you're feeling good about yourself, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. I didn't share that positive declaration to you to cause you to fall into pride. Here, let me get you right back down on ground level. Let me finish. He said that he worked with them, or he worked with them while preaching the message. And the outcome of God working with them was a spirit of synergy, where more was accomplished than if the combined efforts of all of them together, separately, without God. We look at the church and we go, it has to be God, doesn't it? Don't you look at it and say, this has to be God. 2,000 years later, millions of people being saved right now all over the world. And I was in Africa and <clears throat> here just a few months ago, and there was a young man who was illiterate, and he was a preacher. Couldn't even read. And he, they were telling me, they said, I'm learning to read by learning to read the Bible. And I said, how long have you been in the ministry? <clears throat> he said, I've been in the ministry about five years. I said, how's your results? I got a church about 500. I said, I want to go to your church and learn a few things. See, you need to understand what happened. Most of these people were illiterate. They didn't even have a personal Bible. 300 years, they changed the Roman Empire. Many of them didn't even have a personal Bible, and they were not even literate. 
But guess what? God working with them because they devoted themselves to what was revealed to them, and it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they went everywhere preaching that message. And God did the rest. I'm ready for us to go say, I'm going to abandon the, the wisdom of the world, and I want to go back to saying, God, I'll be your fool. I'll be your fool. Let me just preach the basic truth. And let you go to work. Instead of me saying, God, hang on here. Hang on here. Let me finish what I'm doing. Thank you. Let me finish what I'm doing here. And I told you I was going to let you go by noon. I got one minute. Reinhard Bonnke, the first time that they had kind of a breakout crusade, if you read in his book, he said, he said that he was right in the middle of his message. And... All of a sudden, there was this commotion in the crowd. And God just came down, working with the word that he preached, and just healed this guy. And, of course, people from the village knew who he was, and he was the village cripple, and it was a radical miracle. And he said that he was up there, and he was preaching away, and all of a sudden, this commotion, and it's like, what's going on here? And then finally, the Lord says, I'm doing something. I want you to shut up and let me... Do it. And it's like, I'm not done with my message. And it was like the Holy Spirit had to say, this wasn't about you finishing your message. This is about you being foolishness, being foolish enough to share my message so that it creates a platform where I show up and be God. gave me some hot stuff it will burn the hair off so I won't do it until afterwards God worked with them and then it says they confirmed it it means the endorsement of heaven that's what I want where God sets to us a seal where it says this seal is the mark of of authenticity, this is a preacher of the gospel. You know, God's willing to do that in your life, to give you the seal of endorsement. And the seal is signs and wonders and miracles. Not numbers, not the attractional church model, None of the things that the Western church says is the mark of success. The endorsement, the seal of God's housekeeping approval is that he endorses his church with power. And so if I know that, I'm not going to pursue, because this is where a lot of the charismatic church is. Okay, teach me how to do miracles. And so what we do is we get into seven principles of how to do miracles. And what we do need is we need to baptize and immerse ourselves in the gospel. And all of a sudden, God comes up and he goes, thank you. You built my platform for me. I show up. How many are ready to do that? Stand with me in this pray. Now, for those that you are offended today, in the words of Bob Newhart, there's just two words. Stop it. <laughs> you know, stop it. Stop it. Just stop it. Don't be offended. Allow truth to work and never hurt so good. Amen. Father, I just thank you for how you are preparing your church to shine preparing your church to be radiant and beautiful. How to preserve her in that state of being forever young, fruitful, multiplying, powerful, so full of glory, brilliant, 
I could go on and on about the adjectives, Lord, that you want your church to be. And Lord, I thank you that you're getting us there. And so as we finish this service today, Lord, we just say, do not let us leave here and just go about the rest of the day. Lord, I pray that this word would be catalyst, a catalyst to create hunger, a catalyst to create desire, a catalyst to create fortitude, to press, to reach, to lean into the grace. And I thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you empower our hearts to run, run and not be weary, and walk and not faint, and to mount up as it were with the wings of eagles. I thank you for that. Do that in us. Do that in this city. Do that in your people here today. Lord, I just pray, God, that we would begin to recover the joy of our salvation as we start becoming more passionate more centered on Jesus. That Jesus becomes once again the love of our life. And as we used to sing years ago, that we would just keep falling in love with Him over and over and over again. That every day your mercies are fresh and new and we're encountering you in new ways in which, Lord, we just say, this is just like it was in the beginning. I thank you for that. Lord, for those that are here today that are disconnected, they're bored with Jesus because they've never really encountered him. Lord, I pray that we would abandon the substitutes and the dilution and we would cling to him right now. Lord, those that are away from you, I pray that the Holy Spirit, and yes, I'm praying this, Lord, would you convict their hearts? Would you show them the destruction of their sin. And would they also have the revelation of your remedy through the blood? I thank you for that this morning. Save the lost. Renew the backslidden God. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.